This is The Guardian. This week we're on the road again in the West Midlands. The future looks quite bleak, really, and I don't want my school to provide an education that is less than good. Over the last 12 years, some of people's most basic local services have been endlessly cut. Now rising need and surging inflation are causing yet another financial squeeze. Very clearly, austerity has been baked in. I mean, once you lose the amount of money that we've lost, we don't have the sort of capacity to do what we might want to do. Last week, Jeremy Hunt said he would be spending some additional money on health, social care and schools. But the general picture is grim, not least for the councils who've been shrinking their services for years. So we've left Westminster behind to hear from a council leader, the volunteers who run a library now doubling as a warm bank and a head teacher. All of them are already in an increasingly impossible predicament. I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Week the UK for The Guardian. This is your 10-minute whistle-stop tour to the historic wonders of Coventry. Everywhere's interesting, but this place is fascinating. This is what remains of Coventry Cathedral, which in the sort of midst of a city which looks almost completely modern because it was so heavily bombed in the war, this part of town is the one bit of old Coventry that remains. So you suddenly step out of the city centre into this and look, you feel like you're somewhere completely different. You could be in York, couldn't you? But we're only a stone's throw away from this very sort of post-war, deliberately built city centre. It's just sort of history is everywhere here. Huge chunk of the British car industry, Philip Larkin, the two-tone movement. There's a lot happening in Coventry. We've come here because I haven't been for ages. (laughs) That's one reason. But also because the city council here, like councils all over the place, is in a very, very difficult financial position, which I would imagine has just been made a huge amount worse by Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement. Our priorities are stability, growth and public services. We also protect the vulnerable, because to be British is to be compassionate, and this is a compassionate We are not alone in facing these problems, but today we respond to an international crisis with British values. We are honest about the challenges and we are fair in our solutions. People's eyes glaze over sometimes when you mention councils, but they're the people who deliver a hell of a lot of the services that people depend on. We've come to the HQ of Coventry City Council to meet George Duggins, its Labour leader. Wow, there's all sorts of uh, echoes of the present in your past then. You became a councillor just after Black Wednesday. Yeah, in um, 1993. So tell us what you do, what services you deliver. Well, we obviously deliver social care, roads, maintenance, highways, parks... We have a role in respect to education, obviously environmental services, and, you know, refuge. You know, there's so many services that we provide. They really are what people see when they get out the front door. And, and I mean, I have to say, uh, in respect to local government, 
it's probably more significant to people's lives than what they get nationally. So that brings us on then to here and now, right? Yeah, the here and now, yeah. Tell me about the, the financial uh, position of the council right now. Well, we've lost somewhere in the region of around about you know, £400 per head of population since 2010. Uh, it's been a, a massive cut in our, our resources. That's £400 a year. Uh, yeah, in respect to Coventry, uh, we're one of the lowest core-funded councils. So we are in a position in which we're around about 20 million light a year in respect to our core funding. Now, there's a roundabout... Hold on a minute, stop there. So core funding means money you get from yes, central government, yes. from Whitehall, right? So we, we would need a further 20 million just to allow us to reach 90% uh, of the average funding level for local authorities. Right now, I mean, this is, uh, this is going back to the summer that I read, there was a £17 million annual funding gap, was what you were staring at yes. in the summer. That remains the case, right? Well, we will probably balance the bu budget. Well, you have to. We've got to. We'll probably balance the budget this year. But unless something happens next year for 24, 25, we're going to see quite potentially large cuts in services. Cuts to what sorts of things, do you think? I mean, we're limited to things like parks, uh, highways and, and libraries and the things that, that people find essential. Looking back, no. once, once it really got going in 2009, 2010, yes. you have been having to make economies, which is a polite way of putting it, yeah. probably every year since well, then. We, we balance budgets. We haven't had to make cuts. But, you know, very clearly, austerity has been baked in. I mean, once you lose the amount of money that we've lost, we, we don't have the sort of capacity to do what we might want to do. And, we, and local government's proved that in actual fact, it's very effective. The worst of it was 29 to 2015. It then eased, although it never really went away. Well, I think it's eased rather than gone away. Right. And, and, and now you're faced with austerity coming roaring back. We basically. are faced with austerity coming roaring back. And it's been, uh, it's been done by stealth in many ways. What the government have done with the autumn statement is basically said, well, you can raise council tax by 5%, 3% council tax, 2% social care. But what that once again does, it devolves the pain to local government and to local people. You know, our constituents are very, very hard up. So it, we're passing the pain on to them. So there's two, there's two sides to that increase in council tax. There's firstly as you say, the additional money that loads on the local people. Yeah. That's one yeah. question. And then the second one is how much money that actually brings in for you. My guesstimate, it probably a 3% would yield probably in the region about 3.5 million. It will reduce the gap, but very marginally. But the other 2% has to go on to adult social care. So that is, is effectively ring-fenced. In terms of sort of recent history, I mean, you yourself have been a councillor for 30 years, right? Yeah. So you saw all this happen. The level of cuts that have happened in Coventry in a lot of the areas that you talk about are pretty mind-boggling. I mean, yeah. Coventry and Warwickshire lost 30 children's centres between 2010 yeah. and 2020. That's a lot, right? Your youth budget between 2010 and 2020 came down by 80%. Yeah. It was 8.6 million in 2010. It's 1.7 million now, yeah. right? Or thereabouts. If you're then presented with the necessity of cutting even more looking ahead, what's left? I think this is, this is the crux of the matter. Uh, where's the fat? It was never fat to there's start never, with. We're talking about basic amount, services. Yeah, really. I mean, never a great amount of fat. We used to call it the low-hanging fruit. Right. It's no longer there. If you say to local government, 
efficiencies. Where are the efficiencies available? And this is why this austerity clearly, in my mind, won't work. Well, what will happen? Well, at the end of the day, if it continues, we'll have to look at services in its entirety and stop doing them. Like what? Well, I can't say at the moment, but we're not that far. Yeah, what do we do? Do uh, And this is a debate for ourselves. Do we salami slice services? Or do we actually say, Let, let's take a service and not do it anymore? Because not all the services we do are statutory. And if they're not statutory, we can stop doing them. And even if they are statutory... You know, statutory service, that we, as long as it's provided, there's a silence on what it actually means. So hold on, but that, that may mean, for example, uh, you probably won't want to answer this, but that may mean, for example, that your library service might just go over to the voluntary sector entirely. I mean, potentially that could happen. I'm not saying it would. And, of course, very clearly, you know, we, we're committed, obviously, to somewhere like children, some service like children's services, which we're committed to. We can look to efficiencies in children's services potentially but you know what we can't do you know is we can't undermine what we need to do in respect to our safeguarding yeah yeah from your perspective i wouldn't imagine you came into the council here and began your life as a councillor wanting to cut things every year that's not that's not really that wasn't really the the life you had in mind how does it feel to have been in this position for as long as you have been, and more to the point, I think for, for austerity to be going on. How do you feel coming to work every day? The, the truth of the matter is, it's not what I came into local government for. And if I'm quite honest, I don't believe anybody comes into public life for that. I think what people want to do is to try, and it's noble, it sounds very noble, to make a difference to constituents. And you can see sometimes that you do, but you know overall that... You know, you, there are certain services where you either can't provide them or they're not, you know, what they were. Well, like any human being would, they, people in that position always put a brave face on things, don't they? It's not like anyone stands there and goes, this is a, a terrible catastrophe and uh, we're all going to suffer. That's sort of what you're looking at. You think about it. That Coventry and Warwickshire have lost 30 children's centres and 80% of their youth budget. You're really left with a situation, if you're not careful, in which councils just deliver what are their statutory responsibilities, which is adult and children's social care and bins. And so you end up with what I have talked about in the past on this podcast, which is what, what I call ambient austerity, which is that when you walk around, you know, you just see it everywhere because the litter doesn't get picked up and the park doesn't get fixed and the grass verges don't get mowed. You know, the libraries are all running limited hours or are shut down and there's no youth provision, you know. And you can get through that, right? You can survive in the midst of it all, but I don't think it's living. And that's, that's really the, the future that most of the country's looking into now. So as the leader of the council said, one of the public services which has already been handed to volunteers to run in some part not totally is the library service and we're now on our way to Earlsden Library in Coventry which I've just been told is a Carnegie library which is sort of rich with historical interest Andrew Carnegie was a Scottish American philanthropist who made it you know a, a multi multi-millionaire who made it his business to 
fund libraries in Britain and America and across the world. So this place, so this place was threatened with closure, and it was sort of saved really by volunteers who now run it. What can you just the very fact that it was threatened with closure? Can you imagine this place given to the people of Coventry in 1912 by Andrew Carnegie, right? as a way of sort of giving people what they needed, you know, of improving and regenerating places through knowledge. That's why I get really upset about libraries in decline, you know. I wouldn't be doing this podcast if it weren't for public libraries. There's no exaggeration, you know. The place where I learned to read about politics and music and all the things that I write about for a living, I was a public library. And now they're just constantly in this sort of fragile and precarious state. Hi, we're here to see Lucy. Oh, nice I'm Julie, I'm the Hi, Lucy. Hi, I'm John, nice Hi. to meet you. Pleased to meet you, you okay? So this is a Carnegie Library? It is. I didn't even know. Yes. yes. Yeah, I sort of collect those. I, like, whenever I've been to one, I'm always sort of, yeah, amazed. Oh, I'm really special. All libraries are special. <laughs> because we had to, because the library was threatened with closure, so what we've had to do is completely reimagine the internal space. So we now have an adult library, thriving children's yeah. library, and if you come this way, the Fiesta Resistance is a reading room. Wow. William Morris wallpaper. It certainly is. I told you it was special. <laughs> oh, you, what, you put that there, yes. did you? Yes, we've done all of this. So before it was just computers, great big computer tables, um, and the room was, was full, basically. And we needed an opportunity to make money for ourselves. And we also wanted to open the space up more and have more of a community focus. So to have a space that is for the community in whatever capacity they wanted. So we had a, a small grant from the council to be able to adapt the room for our needs. Um, and we've spent the money making the reading room, putting up the wallpaper and the freeze, um, buying the sofas. Notwithstanding how it's changed and improved, the very fact that this place was threatened with closure seems sort of mind-boggling in the sense you can tell the need for it because there's loads and loads of people here yeah. on this sort of slightly cold and damp this Tuesday morning. Quiet, this is a quiet morning. A children's library is full but quite often this is full and we have tables down the bottom there where people sit around there. Different groups come, people meet here and now we have all the things for the warm bank which has been, well, warm welcome. It's been really, really successful because our community is stepping up and they are bringing in supplies for us. So among the, the things that you offer people now is a space where they can come and stay warm? Yes, all yeah. day. We heard things about warm banks being done kind of just individually all over the country um, and we really wanted to get involved because we know that there's a lot of people that come in and use the computers particularly that are homeless, that are in really vulnerable housing situations. There's a whole big population of people who are kind of the unseen that we don't that we are here to support. So we knew well, that. And you're seeing more and more of those people, I would yes. imagine. Yeah, we are. Yes, we are. The only thing that we can do is really try to embed ourselves within the community. So, yes. for example, the schools, uh, local schools, come in and use the children's library as their library um, because their funding's been cut, so they can't afford to buy books for the children, but they can use our space. Um, and we have three different schools whoa, 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 now. I think whoa, whoa, yeah, that's, well, you just said something quite interesting and quite striking. What, so because of cuts in local schools, I mean they haven't got as many books as they used to have? They haven't got a school library. They used to have a school library. And but now they, well, now they come know. here to yes, access they books. they do. We have two schools, um, and there's, we're beginning to forge a relationship with the third... So just tell us about 2025 as a sort of key deadline, really. What's, what may or may not happen then? In 2025, our current lease will expire and we will need to renegotiate a new one. 
um, what that will look like, we don't know. And we don't know what the world will look like at that point. We don't know what things like utility bills will be. At the moment, we have a very good deal where the council will pay the vast majority of our utility bills. But we understand that that's that won't continue in the same capacity so we're looking at funding more of our utility bills or potentially all of our utility bills or and as also we don't know if we are funding our utility bills whether we'll be able to take advantage of the discount that the council gets we don't know so at the moment we are trying to fundraise to build up a reserve for when that lease is renegotiated to cover any costs or new costs that will will come along as part of that conceivably could get very very difficult after 2025 yeah we're trying to build up funds at a time when people just haven't got that spare cash in the pocket so so. so like any anything that relies on donations right you're sort of vulnerable twice over aren't you in the sense that your running costs are increasing because of inflation but because everybody else is hit with inflation Mm -hmm. then you're getting less donations in our way forward is to make us we've got to be completely embedded in the community over here, we've got more computers and we've got the gallery space. So the gallery space... You must have, hold on, the computers. You must have people who come in and they look at their universal credit um, oh, yeah. journal and all that stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, that's, again, it's very, very overlooked. You need the benefit system. Yeah. You have to have somewhere you can get online, right? And I think the other thing about universal credit is it's not easy to access help, you know, financial help, even accessing charities, accessing you any kind of... You with that very yeah. often. People will say, I'm having trouble here yeah. with this... Yeah, and I think that's really, really important. How do you feel then about the fact that you're doing all this, all this vital work, right, without which, in many respects, people's lives would be really awful and unimaginable, right? And yet, financially, looking ahead, you're as vulnerable as you are. It's a really difficult situation to be in, and we can only control what we can control. So we are very much focusing on the bits that we can do ourselves and trying not to think about all the external pressures because there's nothing we can do about them. This is the most thriving area of the library here. This is, yeah, this is, so we've just had story time, um, which is one of our volunteers will sit and read a story to the children, um, which again is free for anybody who wants to come along. So you can see the number of parents, grandparents, carers that have brought children along. How often do you come here? Usually twice a week. Twice a week. Yep. Since uh, this library has several activities, and my daughter is one years and a half. So, and why is it important to you? I think it's important for my child because uh, in her age, she can uh, uh, catch up with her friends. Okay, and that's important, isn't it? Especially we're like we're coming out of the pandemic. Yeah. When people didn't have that opportunity, yeah, right? People yeah. were very isolated. Uh, so after going here often, she's become braver. You've noticed a change in your, in your daughter, that her, yep, that yep, her yep. sort of relationship with other people has changed yep, yep. because you come here? Yep, yep, wow, yep. we can't get much, much more important than that. Yeah, that's amazing. So I've had a library thing twice over, really, in the sense that when I was a kid, every Friday I used to go with my dad to the library, right? And that was books and it was records as well. This is, this is uh, centuries before Spotify and all that. So it was hugely important to me. And then with my own kids, you know, in the, in the two places we've lived since I had kids myself, particularly in, in the early years part of that, you know, from like sort of six months a year up to sort of five or six, we used to go to the library all the time, you know. How much do you sort of think about and worry about the future? No. <laughs> Quite a lot. 
It's ironic, I suppose, that as the need is increasing, the stability and the certainty is decreasing. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's just a, a constant, isn't it? It's a constant worry. Yeah, I'm, I'm a retired teacher. And, you know, I just sort of... I didn't ever intend to be in this situation. I just found myself speaking up saying, you can't do this. And so, yes, I would be heartbroken because it's been my life for the past four years, your life too. Mm. So many other people depend on us, and the volunteers do. Some, a lot of volunteers don't see other people, but you come in, and there's people that you work with and you know. So heartbroken doesn't begin to cover it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, I need a coffee now. <laughs> Do you want a drink? Have you got to go? Thank you so much. I think we in this country, in this country, we have this tendency to think, well, what's an essential public service? People just go, oh, the NHS, and that's right, but that's an essential public service too, right? And it's in a really precarious position. The other thing is, if you wonder if the only viable future for lots and lots of public services is you have to get communities to run them themselves, you know, do you reach a point where that just becomes untenable? Because as great as things like this are, people can't do everything, right? I mean, there's a reason that the, the state is there as a provider of things. Because people have day jobs and family lives and all that. Right, so we're now going 40 minutes or so from Coventry to Walsall, which is just as much feeling the effects of 12 years of austerity and the fact things are about to get even worse. We did put a bid in to speak to the Conservative leader of Walsall Council, but um, it didn't respond. So instead, or as well, we're going to go and see somebody right at the sharp end of everything we've been talking about. Uh, we're here to see Michelle. Michelle Sheehy is the executive head teacher of Millfield Primary in Brown Hills. I first met Michelle four years ago and we've kept in touch ever since. I wanted to hear from her about how the school will cope with an increasingly dire financial future. This is where, in my opinion, this is where education actually happens is this part of the day. Absolutely. When everyone finds out who they are. <laughs> <laughs> We're now in a tent. Very big, aren't you, on the idea of the sort of green space and being out of doors Absolutely. is really central to the sort of education of the kids here. Absolutely, certainly, especially the special needs children. Any child with autism, they, you know, they really thrive outdoors. Um, one of the things that we are worried about losing because we've got a full-time um, outdoor education teacher at the moment, um, but our budget is, well it's going to be in huge deficit in a couple of years so we're looking to see where we can make cuts at the moment and that's that's one of the key ones potentially well it's something that isn't in the national curriculum it isn't you know we don't legally have to do it but we don't want to let it go so we're looking to see how we can keep it 
God, so that's, we keep hit, you keep hitting this. Whenever you have conversations with people about cuts and difficult financial circumstances, it's like what's considered core and what isn't. And very often that's a fairly arbitrary distinction, isn't it? Because as you said, someone with autism, very often, being outdoors is very core to them. It's really, really well, important. And yet that's vulnerable. Us. That's vulnerable, right? Absolutely. This is core to us and, and how we believe education should be. So uh, we don't want to let this go. Right. Um. Keep going. The, the community you serve, the area that you're in, yeah. sort of, you know, socioeconomically, just tell me about that. Well, it, it is a, an area of high disadvantage. Um, it's generally a white uh, working class area, traditionally. Um, that's changing slightly now. Uh, we've got some, some other families moving in, um, but we have got 30%, 38% children are, are disadvantaged. Okay. Officially. And what, do you know what <laughs> proportion say, of your of your kids have special educational needs? I mean, obviously that changes in the course of a, of a child's life at school very often. But it really does. I would say it, it's more prevalent in the early years. I don't know if that is something that's happened after lockdown and and you know the fact that they've been denied access to other to activities and things like that. Um, also. Obviously, all the sure start centres and things like that, they all closed, so then they're, they're not getting those. This one is open. So it's like our outdoor area. Wow. And I suppose the point is that, as amazing as all this is, this, this and it's not extra, is it? Because it's central to kids' experience here. Yeah. But this is the part of what the school does that has cuts by very very often turns out to be the most vulnerable right that if things if you have to make economies they fall in things areas like this yeah i mean i'm really going to you'd have to drag me kicking and screaming to stop us doing this and um i think we could do it partly with volunteers but we can't do it to the same standard as it is now because it's not considered core it's therefore vulnerable yeah absolutely yeah so is that what life is sometimes like at the moment is sort of having to dig in and defend things from cuts, basically. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I feel as though I've just got blinkers on and I'm, I'm just saying I'm not listening. I'm just putting my hands over my ears and I, we are not stopping doing this, you know. Give us some other... Are there any other examples that spring to mind? Uh, well, speech and language. We, we pay um, £10,000 a year for a speech and language intervention person. That is desperately needed we could do with doubling that but that i think is going to have to go when i first came to speak to you here it was 2018 and there was a funding crisis a budget crisis for schools then right yeah how is it now it is a hundred percent worse before when you came i was looking at trimming back everything but i wasn't looking at restructuring the whole school now that's what we're faced with and when you say restructuring what do you mean because restructuring can sound quite nice, right? But but this this is completely different. So give me a sense of what that restructuring involves. So it involves lo losing staff that are our biggest resource. 
how do you think that will sort of materially affect the kids' education here? So in other words, what's the... We tend to talk about these things in the abstract, don't we? Cuts and budgets yeah. and all that. But what will that mean for the sort of day-to-day experience that kids have at the school? That future? So that will mean that children who um, normally get intervention, normally get help, um, may not have it because we've got to make sure that all the children are safe. That's our first priority. So that um, teaching assistant time will be directed to where the greatest need is. As I say, speech and language intervention is going to go. The outdoor learning is going to be trimmed back. Um, what makes this school really special? It's not. It's not going to be basically quite the same, and uh, it will affect the children because if you ask any of the children what what they're proud of, you know, we we asked a year six class, for example. Well, they don't tell you they're proud of using fronted adverbials. They'll tell you they're proud that they can get a canoe to turn around in the water or that they, you know, they've got their 25-metre swimming badge. And it makes them into rounded human beings that can go on to their next school and take part in everything there, you know, because they've got the grounding to do that. What's the sort of basic nature of the financial pressure? What's happening that's causing those problems that you've talked about well it's it's lots of things really so first of all it's um pay increases that are not funded by government so that's huge um the special needs funding is you know not anywhere near enough so that's another thing then you've got inflationary pressures especially now um and with the gas and electric and so on all going up it's like a perfect storm really and looking ahead, I ask you that because, you know, we had the autumn statement last week. I was some, yeah. And you presumably watch that and see it through Probably. the prism of being a head teacher here, <laughs> yeah. right? And he basically said, well, it's going to be the message of that really was it's going to be carry on being pretty awful for the next couple of years. And then after 2025, if they're still in charge, it'll get worse, right? right yeah. So there, there has been money for schools identified, yeah. which we were obviously pleased about. However, we have to make three-year projections for our budget but in reality we don't know what it's going to be in the third year we don't know what it's going to be in the second year and the funding that's been promised in any case will only take us back to where we were in 2010 what you need that you're not getting we need we just need more funding we need a huge increase um and we don't need all little pots of money that you have to you bid for etc because we know better than anybody else how to spend it. You know, the future looks quite bleak, really. And I don't want my school to provide an education that is less than good. That's your worry? That's my worry, yeah. Thank you very much. See you. You know, I mean, you know, good good schools, you know, you go in, you know, straight away, right? So you get that feeling when you go in there, but more to the point then, you then are introduced to all this amazing stuff that they do. Like, who knew, as I kept saying, in a built-up part of the West Midlands like this, you know, you'd have this emphasis on outdoors education and all that, and that, because it's not considered core or whatever, is what's vulnerable. And they've been... And Michelle is this amazing person who does amazing things. The thought I keep having, I suppose, in the course of making podcasts and writing articles and doing films is that I don't want to just be focusing all the time on despair and how awful everything is. 
I mean, it's sort of hard to avoid those kind of conclusions. Because we've had 12 years of austerity now. And despite people being promised that it was all going to end and that we'd build back better and all the rest of it, it's about to get even worse. And that's the story. But at the same time, I suppose what sort of keeps me going and I hope keeps a lot of other people going is the fact that there are amazing people out there doing amazing things in really difficult circumstances. But that's kind of the biggest tragedy of all, you know. Between Jeremy Hunt standing there at the dispatch box reading out the medium term financial statement and the financial predicament of councils and schools and libraries and all that you know what sits between those is amazing people who deserve so much better you know and that's so i think that's the sort of that defines our national condition now a spokesperson for the department of leveling up housing and communities told us this year, we have made available an additional £3.7 billion to councils to ensure they have the resources to deliver vital services, including an extra £20 million for Coventry City Council. At the autumn statement, the government announced a further £6.5 billion will be made available for local government to deliver core services in 2023-24 and 2024-25. We will announce details on next year's financial settlement shortly. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts and even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice one. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 